Stuart, you look great with uh, Janine Benyus written all over your face. Um, thank you very much. I'm honored, of course, um, and uh, even a little intimidated. Uh, I want all of you to uh, listen carefully so that you can tell me afterwards uh, where these ideas are right and where they're wrong and how you can make them better. Um, this is really a great uh, moment. Uh, when I started uh, EcoTrust about uh, almost 15 years ago, I met with Stuart and um, described uh, what I wanted to do, um, try to build a movement around uh, integrating social, economic, and environmental concerns. I got about a minute and a half or two minutes into the conversation, and he said, I get it. I think your motto should be, get rich slow. And I think that's a great motto. I love that. And uh, Stuart, I wanted to... Uh, report to you that uh, uh, it's working. <laughs> it's really, really, really slow. The long, poor now. Uh, it's getting really tedious. I'm getting impatient. And if any of all you smart uh, Silicon Valley people have any good ideas about how to get rich quick, I'd really like to talk with you after the, after the discussion here. So I've got a few heroes in addition to Stuart uh, Brand and, and Ryan Phelan and Paul Hawken and half the people here, Kevin Kelly. Um, Janine Benyus, now you got the idea there. She's uh, uh, produced this wonderful book a few years ago called Biomimicry and uh, aggregated all those uh, uh, great individual experiments, Wes Jackson with, uh, with agriculture in uh, uh, Kansas and... Uh, uh, the guys that are inventing things, uh, material science people out of spider webs and slug slime and taking abalone shell and figuring out what uh, we know about ceramics and making them out of common materials at life, temperature and pressure instead of the heat, treat and beat. Um, but she brought all those ideas together in one place. And I love the way she described it. Nature is model. Nature is measure. Nature is mentor. Um, in effect, she said, you know, all the design problems that we struggle with have already been solved. Um, the result of three and a half billion years of uh, successful trial and error experiment is what we've got, and uh, we should be paying attention. Another hero, I guess probably to all of us, is Jane Jacobs, uh, who's written all kinds of wonderful books. Um, uh, life and Death of Great American Cities. Uh, she came on the board of EcoTrust for several years in the mid-90s, about the time she was working on this book called The Nature of Economies. Um, it's a spectacularly important and good book that I find just almost impossible to read. Um, it's really, uh, I don't know, Kevin, what you thought. It, it, there's all kinds of good stuff in there, but it's really hard to get at it. But the premise of the book, what she said right up front, the beginning was that human beings exist wholly within nature as part of natural order in every respect. And if you can't buy that, you really won't agree with anything that she says. And if you can't buy that, you probably won't agree with anything that I have to say tonight as well. Um, you know, it's the same, uh, same as uh, nature uh, always bats last and, by the way, owns the stadium or the global economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the global ecosystem. 
Um, it's that idea. The book has got, let me say a few things from the book because it's so rich. The nature of development. Uh, I'm convinced, said Jane Jacobs, that e- economic life is ruled by processes and principles that we didn't invent and can't transcend whether we like it or not, and that the more we learn of these processes and the better we respect them, the better our economies will get along. Working along with natural principles of development, expansion, sustainability, and correction, people can create economies that are more reliably prosperous than those that we have now and that are also more harmonious with the rest of nature. I love that. Uh, Reliable prosperity. Is that what we're looking for or what? Development principles. She talked about differentiation emerging out of generality. And that's actually really elegant, quite beautiful. Differentiations become generalities from which further differentiations emerge. Development is an open-ended process which creates complexity and diversity by repeating and repeating and repeating a simple process, staggering diversity results. She talked about how development is depends on co-developments. The development is not a line but a web. Economic developments don't come out of thin air. They have lineages and pedigrees, the same as other forms of natural development. And this is in some ways the best the best of all. Um, economic development, she said, isn't a matter of imitating nature. Rather, economic development is a matter of using the same universal principles that the rest of nature uses. The alternative isn't to develop some other way. Some other way doesn't exist. Economic development is a a version of natural development. So we got to watch it a little bit with uh, biomimicry. It isn't a matter that we just need to copy nature. We are nature. And we either work in a way that's consistent with natural systems and processes, or we're going down the drain. And the other part that I love is that uh, systems uh, make themselves up as they go along. Ecosystems, economies, weather, languages, all complex adaptive systems do that. Creative self-organization is uncommandable, unpredictable future. I like that because I, I can't figure it all out, and the only way I can make things work is just to jump in and try something and see if it works and fiddle with it a little bit and then try something else and plow ahead. So that's the best part of all. Then there's one other hero. Um, that uh, I wanted to mention um, for one great quote, uh, Dave Foreman, Earth First. I've never met him. Um, he, uh, you know, did the uh, National College campus tour and uh, really got people riled up. And at the end of one of his talks, uh, a young co-ed in the back got up in sort of despair and said, what one thing can I do, one thing, that I can do that would be most important to help the environment. And he said, stay home. I love that. Uh, that's what uh, Native people do. Uh, that's what real economic development takes. That's what biomimicry takes. You've got to be in a place and try to understand a place over a long period of time to begin to even begin to understand how we might want to develop so I think it's uh, it's kind of 
biomimic or die, uh, or collapse maybe is what Jared Diamond's going to tell us. Um, I wanted to quickly do one other thing. It's maybe it's because I spend a lot of time with native people up and down the coast. Whenever you meet a native person, a native elder in particular, you um, they always want to tell you their exact and full name and who their mother was and who their father was and what clan they're part of. This beaver clan is different than a raven clan, is different than an eagle clan, and what village they're from. So you know exactly kind of where they fit in the scheme of things. And I think it's a, it's a, it's part of respect. You know, when you say it's good to know you, you really, you know, you begin to know who a person is by that, by that description. Um, where do I come from? I think the most important influence in my life was growing up in Oregon, falling in love with birds and particularly birds of prey. And from age, uh, I don't know, 10, 11, uh, through college, I practiced falconry. That was my first bird, Tia. That's a red-tailed hawk about uh, about six weeks old. And um, a great springer spaniel named Toby on the coast of Oregon. Um, Tia was a magnificent bird. Uh, same red-tailed hawks that you see right here in the Presidio that you found the nests of. Same red-tailed hawk that pale male. Uh, you know, they tried to kick him off of uh, uh, Paulus's, what's her name? Uh, uh, the reporter's uh, front porch and the on the tower above Central Park, and they spent $200,000 putting back a platform so she could nest again. Um, one wonderful bird, sweet and uh, gentle and easygoing, and at other times uh, tough uh, as hell, like the time she ate my uh, sister's cat. <clears throat> this is a uh, this is about a four-week-old uh, peregrine falcon, a female, uh, Ayas. I snatch it from its nest on the North Saskatchewan River, that must have been 1960, 1960, I guess, in the summertime. Right there, we're floating down the Red Deer River in a 17-foot Grumman canoe. I think we had a coyote skull tied to the bow. It looks a little weird sticking out of there, but look at the eye of that bird. I mean, you can tell in a young organism, a young creature, you look in their eye, and they have that deep, extraordinary look. I mean, they you really know they're looking at you when she's looking. This is... uh Arctica, full-fledged, about three weeks later, sitting on the back of the sofa when I was supposed to be doing my homework, probably fooling around reading books on birds of prey and trying to understand the habits and habitats and life history so that I could learn to get along with these birds. The first summer uh, with Arctica, uh, I spent uh, theoretically taking care of a, a ranch uh, property on the Metolius River in central Oregon, fixing up corrals and doing, irrigating and Chasing horses around is hard to do when you've only got one hand, because I uh, I didn't go anywhere without uh, Arctica. Um, but this was all. Um, I mean, I just thought this was the most magnificent creature in the world. I mean, this is the absolute ultimate, penultimate expression of this successful um, history of evolution. Uh, every single feather in that bird is right. Everything that bird does is right. Um, and the, the powerful influence was when I'd run into a coat and tie proper adult, the people are making decisions in, in uh, society, and we get talking about it, they'd always ask, how did you train that bird? And I just thought that was the stupidest question I could possibly imagine. How could some dumb 14-year-old kid train a peregrine falcon? The peregrine falcon, you know, does everything absolutely magnificently. 
has more integrity and authenticity and does everything the way it's supposed to be done to be trained. I was training myself. I had to figure out how to work with that bird and go out in the field with that bird. So I, was, I it just seemed like, how come people are always asking exactly the wrong question? <clears throat> Golden eagle nest up on the John Day River. Um, there's another one, uh, a wonderful golden eagle. Um, uh, you gotta kinda look them right in the eye cause they, uh, they can get kinda tough when you're not paying attention. And I wasn't doing that and what I really like to do is uh, be out in a place uh, like this taking pictures with an old view camera. Um, that's what I feel most comfortable doing. Um, and, uh, uh, anyway, that's what, uh, the way I sort of grew up is just uh, with these birds trying to learn and understand how they worked. And I think that uh, that's why I've spent uh, 30 years um, as a conservationist. A little did I know that that uh, boyhood uh, uh, adolescent infatuation with uh, charismatic megafauna was altogether wrong. And what I really should have been looking at and watching was slime mold. Because um, as we all know from, well, Stephen Johnson's new book on emergence, uh, slime mold is what's told us all about how uh, complex adaptive systems and emergent behavior uh, really works. Here's this remarkably undifferentiated single-celled organism uh, that is exactly like all the other individuals. And at some point when the light and moisture is right, they all aggregate together into this awful-looking mass and creep across the forest floor, eating things as they go, and then put up a reproductive uh, um, part and send spores out to start all over again. And it took us uh, researchers 30 years. We always assumed that the only way they could do that is there had to have one cell, like a queen bee, that was a pacemaker, that was in charge. It was the hierarchical industrial uh, system where there's got to be somebody in charge, right? And they excrete uh, a chemical, and then everybody else... It senses the pheromone, and they get in line, and off they go. Well, there wasn't any pacemaker. The undifferentiated cells, each on their own, said, okay, things are right, let's go. And that's, uh, I guess, having a lot of influence now. Kevin, was that what fast, uh, cheap, and out of control was about? Something like that. So, uh, Ecotrust, we started in 1991. We've got an idea. Um, we call it salmonation. Um, and I think part of it is we're just trying to get it a, a sort of a mythology of place. We've got to get in people's head. We've got to get people change the way they think. We've got to get away from the industrial model. And we've got to get back to the slime mold, uh, emergent, complex adaptive system model, the biomimic model, the Jane Jacobs model. We've got three basic goals. We try to articulate this idea of salmon nation. You know, a place defined by where the salmon go uh, and a society, an economy that's built on the particular characteristics of that environmentally defined place. An ancient idea, but a revolutionary idea. Uh, instead of building states and economies on the political lines of war and colonialism, the straight lines of county and state and uh, province, why wouldn't we define the place around environmental lines and think of the people who live there as citizens of that place as they have been for 12,000 years and why don't we let the find ways in which to encourage the people that live in those places to take care of it, leave it off a little better than they found it. Um, 
we also, in addition to trying to articulate that idea and mapping and describing the place, try to create uh, some successes, support tangible successes on the ground, and then we're trying to build constituencies of place, constituencies for change. We play three sort of roles in kind of reverse order. Catalyst is the idea, um, describing Salmon Nation. Most of what we do is actually brokerage, and we're simply trying to bring those citizens of Salmon Nation who are trying to, through themselves, their, their neighborhood organizations, their watershed uh, councils, their uh, businesses and uh, local governments and tribes, trying to improve social, economic, and even environmental conditions. We try to bring them the same resources that are part of globalization, access, increasing access to information and technology and capital. And then sometimes we just get bored and impatient and uh, we just charge ahead and do something ourselves. That's what we do. It's sort of those three kinds of things. Now, what I was going to try to do tonight was talk about just one particular uh, uh, sector activity, forests and forestry, and a model of biomimicry that was quite different than the model that's out there right now. Uh, early on at EcoTrust, we uh, we uh, thought, well, there maybe there is such a thing as a temperate rainforest. I've been uh, spent 13 years working on tropical rainforests. I wanted to get home. I wanted to stay home, and uh, uh, so we looked at temperate rainforests, and it turns out they occur in this relatively narrow band uh, combination of uh, of temperature and precipitation where it's too wet to be temperate or grassland or desert, uh, too cold too cold to be tropical, uh, and too warm to be a, a taiga or tundra. Um, temperate rainforests, coastal temperate rainforests, are actually quite rare. They were scattered about. This is where they were maybe a 1,000 years ago. Um, the biggest area of coastal temperate rainforest in the world is in North America. It's only about 200 million acres altogether worldwide. The second biggest area is there on the southern coast of Chile. Um, and then there's, there's some still on the uh, South Island on the west coast of uh, New Zealand, a little bit in Tasmania. There was some that's now all gone on uh, Ukraine and Georgia and in uh, southwest Norway, western Ireland and Scotland. And there was a little tiny piece up there in Iceland. And I think that's maybe where Jared Diamond talks about the uh, Norsemen getting in there, cutting down all the trees and, and eating their dogs and vanishing. Uh, it's a tiny fraction of the area of tropical forest. Over half of it's gone. And when we zoom in a little bit more on the, on the largest one, on uh, uh, North America, there you have the coast. There you have the temperature. And there you have the moisture, coastal temperate rainforests. Um, from, oh, right about there, uh, a Fognac, the eastern part of Kodiak Island, right down the coast of, around Prince William Sound and the Lost Coast and down into southeast Alaska and British Columbia. And then we include uh, the redwoods as well. Um, I don't think there's any place in the world where you can go 2,000 miles north-south across that ex- all those latitudinal lines and still have so little variation in temperature from a mean average of, you know, 55 degrees or so. There it is, uh, what it looked like, about 100 million acres, uh, redwoods down here. Um, uh, the, the, it's defined by 80 inches or more of rain a year, 
relative absence of summer drought, therefore relative absence of catastrophic fire, therefore the trees grow old, and they grow big, and they have uh, uh, the principal disturbance, not fire, not big open uh, destruction, are small winter windstorms, and it's a patchy disturbance. Landslides, changing river courses, snow avalanches. It's a patchy mosaic of disturbance. Uh, because they live so long and they get so big, it's, they have more standing biomass than any other f- ecosystem of any kind uh, by a magnitude of three to five-fold. I mean, three to five-fold more standing biomass than than uh, than tropical, the richest tropical rainforest. So we know something about the history of the uh, temperate rainforest in North America from from uh, pollen diagrams. You know, pollen, when they get into a wetland or a bog, will last for thousands and thousands of years, and you can take core samples in the bogs and, and uh, get the uh, distribution of the different species over time. So this is kind of the picture of the coastal temperate rainforest uh, of North America over time. Um, that's 50,000 years. And, of course, there was glaciation and deglaciation, interglacial periods. And what's interesting there is that, the, you know, this region in that period of time went from parkland and sort of a mountain, uh, more alpine forest type, to tundra, to spruce and pine. And only in the last, really, 5,000 years has it become dominated by the species that we see today, uh, western red cedar, uh, western hemlock, sitka spruce, um, red alder and big leaf maple along the streams. Um, this is a little more of the detail in the last uh, 15,000 years for the Olympic Peninsula, Puget Trough, uh, the coast of Oregon, and the north coast of California. So r- there we are, only maybe 5,000 years. I mean, large scale. Is that large scale? Is that very long time? Well, it's as long a time as that forest has, ex- has existed. Uh, and if you think about it, red cedar... Uh, they can get to be 15 feet, almost 100 meters, and 1,000, 1,200, sometimes 1,500 years old. So that represents five generations of red cedar. This is a young forest. It's a magnificent forest. Um, as I mentioned, you know, characterized by structural diversity, age class diversity. There may be young Seedlings that are a year or two in the forest floor, and then the canopy that uh, some trees may be a thousand years old, and everything in between, and great species diversity and great productivity. Um, there's a patch of old growth, uh, uh, dug fir, dead and dying. You know, western red cedar will live for six or seven hundred years. The top starts to die because it can't pull up the moisture, and you get those candelabra dead-topped uh, red cedar. And then it'll stand and slowly die for two or three, four hundred years. Uh, and then after all of it is altogether dead, it'll stand as a dead uh, a live snag for, for three or four hundred years. Then it'll fall down and take five hundred years to uh, decay. Um, intimate relationship with streams, with the ocean and the marine environment. Indeed, some scientists are saying that a good amount of the uh, micronutrients, phosphorus and nitrogen, are marine, uh, come from the marine environment in the, in, and come in salmon, and they come up the streams and are picked up by the bears and dragged back to the forest. 
We've looked pretty carefully at the patterns of natural disturbance on a whole watershed basis. I won't get into the detail on that. I wish I knew more about the history of the of people in this region. Uh, coevolution quarterly, this is uh, coevolution millennially, because this forest co-evolved from, as you can tell, the last five, ten thousand years. Indigenous people have occupied this part of the world for at least 10,000, maybe 12,000 years. And, of course, in those glacial periods, uh, when the ice was uh, greatest, uh, the Bering Land Bridge was exposed, and apparently Asian people uh, came across, and it, perhaps in one or several waves, and those were the original people of North America, presumably came down the coast. There were about 60, there were over 60 different language groups in this region, uh, they were uh, matrilineal societies in the north and bilineal in the mid-coast of B.C. south. They were very stratified societies. There was a very uh, well-taken-care-of elite and a large number of commoners, and there were slaves. Uh, and the culture seemed to be organized uh, more uh, around uh, uh, food and uh, social system than around what we would think of as a political system. The food, they had permanent settlements, they had apparently the densest populations of hunter-gatherer, forager people of anywhere in the world at any time in the history of the world, um, presumably because in part of the extraordinary abundance of, of fish and shellfish and food. But the food came in waves and came didn't come all at once. So they had these permanent settlements and these big, wonderful cedar longhouses uh, that would live for 400 years. Um, but then they had to go out with big canoes, and they had wood technology for at least 10,000 years, uh, and had to be organized around the control and access of those individual pulses of food. Um, so extraordinary art, uh, extraordinary uh, uh, ritual and ceremony, uh, uh, and really uh, unique in, um, in the world. We mapped the patterns of change. Uh, first, uh, uh, European um, connections were, what, mid-1700s? Um, uh, we know the guns, germs, and steel uh, story. Uh, most of the native people, of course, died of uh, epidemics and smallpox and so forth. Uh, we decultured them big time, big scale, very fast, in a whole variety of dreadful ways. Um, this left slide shows the status of forest and the relatively smaller part uh, in the mid-coast of B.C. that's really left intact. And the middle slide uh, shows where salmon and steelhead populations have gone extinct, a pretty similar pattern from the south-north. And then this slide is uh, our native language groups. Those are the numbers of speakers still living of each of the distinct of 63 uh, language groups and the paler colors are the ones where it's gone extinct completely or there's just a handful usually of 60-year-plus individuals that speak the language. So coevolution and devolution um, in the region. This is the basic model for forestry that's developed uh, in the industrial age in the last hundred years. Um, it would be hard to imagine a system that would be more completely contrary to the nature uh, of this place. I mean, uh, it's the opposite of biomimicry. Uh, this is an industrial tree plantation. This is the American tree farm 
idea. This is uh, even-aged, where the natural forest is uneven-aged. This is single species, uh, usually of a genetically improved dug fir, uh, where the forest is of many species. This is a single age class uh, where the forest was multiple and is very simple in terms of its structural complexity um, and its interaction with the streams. So clear cut, slash pile. Nature doesn't slash pile. The litter is scattered out over the forest. Burn. Coastal temperate rainforest, 80 inches of rain through the year, doesn't burn much. Um, plant a different species, usually off-site, genetically improved, as if three and a half billion years of evolution hadn't created seeds that might survive best in that particular place. Um, and then uh, a lot of uh, chemicals to control competing vegetation, spraying uh, fertilizer from helicopters, and then clear-cut again at about age 45. Uh, zero age, 20-year-old, even age stand, 35-year-old stand, about a 55-year-old stand. It'll be clear-cut and look like this. We've all seen pictures of the result. It's very efficient. You can, uh, if you're thinking in terms of a income statement versus a balance sheet, you get a lot of income. Net present value is pretty good. You got a lot of trees, you want to make money, cut them all down. Makes sense. Uh, you can get a lot of 20, 25 log trucks uh, off a clear-cut site like that in a day. Kind of looks like that. There's another model, though, a biomimic model. Um, and some of the lessons come from different forest types. This is pine, uh, a little bit of dug fir, western larch, and northeastern Oregon in the interior in a drier site, more level ground, where individual tree selection has been more common, a little easier, although it's usually been a kind of high grading, take the best trees and leave the poorest. Uh, this, this is a guy named Jerry McGarra and his son Sam. He's a forester and a logger, and he just finished logging that whole stand about two months before that. Um, he left the good trees. He encouraged diversity. He left the snags, and when the neighboring rancher came over and wanted to cut down that larch or tamarack snag to make fence posts out of it, he said, sorry, we like snags and we leave those. And that hole is a pileated woodpecker that was nesting and active then. And that larch and that right there is an old red-tailed hawk's nest uh, with a great uh, successful pair of great gray owls, which are relatively uh, rare and unusual, who successfully nested. And that is a about a four-week-old fledgling great gray owl. You can increase diversity, um, habitat structure, wildlife values, the aesthetics, uh, and do a little bit of cutting if you do it in a biomimicked with the patterns of nature sort of way. You can use those same logging equipment to do individual tree selection. You can thin like this uh, about 50-year-old stand of hemlock and begin to get a nice second uh, uh, canopy lower uh, a ground cover of uh, natural regeneration. You get a lot of, you get sometimes 2,000 seedlings per acre if you just open up a little bit of light because that's what those trees do. They're adapted to grow on an organic seed bed in low light. They're shade tolerant and they'll do just fine. Those are spruce and, and uh, hemlock seedlings. That's what a forest that's managed with a biomimic pattern looks like 
one month after the logging was finished. It made money. It left the best trees. It left diversity uh, of species and structures and age classes. That's what uh, a biomimicked natural pattern of forest management might look like from the air. It's sort of a little patch cut, the way a winter windstorm might do. That's what the land about a mile away looks like. I just happened to be flying by in an old beat-up airplane with a little digital camera and poked my camera out the window to see those two uh, comparisons about a month ago. We've uh, done some modeling on a natural forest management model and an industrial model uh, over a 100-year period of time. And uh, on a typical second-growth forest under the two different regimes, the industrial model uh, sort of maintains its value, maintains a really low standing uh, volume of wood because it's young, small, short trees. Again, get clear cut at age 45. The natural model is worth more market value. It produces more harvest, more wood. It produces more cash. It reproduces more cumulative cash. It produces more jobs. It produces more biodiversity. It produces cleaner water and better salmon runs. It captures more carbon and reduces, makes its contribution to reducing global climate change. Um, but in the typical economic terms, net present value is about 80% of the industrial model. If you've got a bunch of trees and you want to have it worth as much as possible soon, you cut them all down, and that's what's happening, of course. So that's a little bit. Here's the story of the coastal temperate rainforest, a little bit of the history and the people that devolved there, and a little bit of the recent history with the, the patterns of, the, of economic development around the forest. And I think there's other ways of going about it. I want to just tell you a couple stories, and then I'll be done. Um, Stewart's been here. Ryan Phelan has been here. Paul Hawken has been here. This is a story about the Kitlope River. Uh, when we did the early mapping, we found that actually there was only one large coastal temperate rainforest uh, intact, a whole watershed in, in all of North America. Uh, the best ones are in British Columbia. There are about 25 over 100,000 hectares in size. Um, it's about 250,000 acres. One left, and that was the Kitlope. Uh, we went there in 1989. Um, it was uh, Heisla native people who had lived there for 10, 12,000 years. Um, and there's still um, um, uh, signs of their historic um, occupation. Um, we asked them what they wanted to do because this Kitlope River Valley, of which was part of their traditional territory, and they said, well, we don't, and the logging was ready to go. There were 280 kilometers of roads that were all mapped out. The, the uh, Orange Survey stakes were out. Uh, they were kind of ready to go. Um, the Heisler didn't particularly want to see it logged. It was still had all the salmon runs, and they fished, subsistence fished in, the, in this area still today. Um, but they said what our problem is is we're not sure there's going to be a Heisler people in another uh, generation because we had six teenage Heisler kids commit suicide in this last summer in a village of 750 people. The drug abuse, the alcohol abuse, the sort of utter despair and the feeling of not wanting to be a Heisler Indian would kind of overcome. So we got busy and worked with them on, on a rediscovery program to get the kids out in the, 
in the country with the, with the elders. And over the course of time, the Heisla stood firm and said, we don't want logging in this area. And four years later, the premier and the logging company, West Fraser Timber Company, in August of 1994, announced that the entire 800,000-acre Kitlope River from the mountaintops and the ice down to the estuary would be protected. Um, these are Heisla Indian kids in a traditional canoe last August in a celebration of the 10th anniversary coming into the ceremony to be welcomed. Um, and uh, the story here is around the Heisla, the, what they wanted to name this place. Um, it was a new kind of protected area um, that respected the natives' interest, and there's a co-management agreement, and they'll be able to continue to use the area. The Heisla took forever to figure out what they wanted to call it. The government called it the uh, Kitlope Heritage Conservancy. The Heisla, after about a year of discussion, said, no, no, we're going to call it Hushtuashu Nuyumjis. said, well, what in the world is that? Um, Hushtuashu is the, their name for that place, their, that very particular place, the land of milky blue waters. It's glacial in the spring, and the water is just turquoise. Nuyumjis are the sacred stories that go with that place. So it's the land of milky blue waters and the sacred stories that go with that place. And the sacred stories, of course, are the ones that accumulated over 12,000 years of continuous occupation that said this is what you can do and this is what you shouldn't do. This is how you can live well in this place. This is another place in the coast of British Columbia. Um, there really wasn't much left in southern B.C. We mapped all the watersheds on Vancouver Island. There were 95 coastal temperate rainforest watersheds in Vancouver Island, over 5,000 hectares in size, about 12,000 acres. Three of them were in an area called Clackwood Sound. Clackwood Sound is on the west coast of Vancouver Island. Just an absolutely beautiful uh, mix of uh, islands and beaches and rocky shore and inland bays and mountains and rivers, um, about a million acres in size. Um, National Geographic went up there uh, in September of uh, 1990 uh, to look at and an art to do an article about temperate rainforests, um, in part at our uh, encouragement. Uh, and this is what they saw. That was uh, National Geographic sort of folded out about three times. That's the Escalante, and that's a clear cut that's about 15 miles long from the rocky shore to the ridgetop. It was 1990. Um, seems a little extreme as a biomimic model. Um, this is 19... What is this? That's 2003. Thank you. 2003, National Geographic went back to uh, Clackwood Sound and uh, wrote a story uh, about that place and waxed eloquent about what they called an eco-economy. Um, when uh, 800 protesters of the logging were arrested, the biggest civil disobedience in Canadian history, um, and finally the logging companies were stopped, the key watersheds were protected, the native people got into the decision-making, a new model for logging around biomimic model evolved, uh, and the economy began to emphasize sports fishing as well as commercial fishing, aquaculture, whale watching, uh, fly fishing, great restaurants, um, and in a period of time of uh, 
you know, a little over 10 years, it really did transition. If you think uh, we need very large-scale, very long-term biomimicry for change, actually, when you get up and say, wait a minute, this industrial economy doesn't work um, and get serious about it, this is the kind of logging that's going on up there now. It's uh, ESOC Forest Resources, which we helped to finance uh, it's a joint venture between the New Chow Nuth Tribal Council, the local native people, and Weyerhaeuser. The natives have the majority interest, um, and they're doing that kind of patch cutting to copy nature. There's the Middle Beach Lodge. Um, when we first started up there in 1990, everybody said, well, what are we going to do for an economy? The tourism season is about two months. It's pouring down rain the rest of the time. Um, what are we going to do? Middle Beach Lodge... Uh, the last few years has got 95% occupancy 12 months a year. This is a five-hour drive from Victoria and a windy one. Um, people love this place. They build it so you can, in the rare moment when it's sunny, you can go out on the beach. Most of the time it's raining and you can sit by the fire and read a book. And they sell winter windstorms because that's really cool. You can sit right there on the deck and watch the waves come crashing over the deck. It's 150 bucks a night. It's not cheap. Um, so uh, it's interesting what can happen if we just sort of stop, rethink, start over again, biomimic. I don't want to talk about this. Ecotrust, uh, one of the things we did was start an environmental bank because we figured if there are people and businesses that are trying to improve fishing and farming and forest practices, then we needed to have a source for information and capital to help them do it. So we did that, and it's a $100 million bank now. It's making money, and... They've made about 300 loans with their nonprofit affiliate, and uh, uh, they're doing pretty well. We also used biomimicry and uh, sort of modeled the restoration of a 100-year-old warehouse in northwest Portland. Um, this is an example of actor rather than broker. We got tired of paying rent and um, wanted to bring our dogs to the office, so we bought a block in downtown Portland and um, did a two-year, $12 million restoration. Um, and uh, cleaned it all up and repointed the brick and uh, rebuilt the parapet and uh, spent a million and a half dollars on seismic steel. And uh, that's what it looks like today. Um, and we've got 25 tenants, uh, resident, uh, retail and uh, uh, commercial um, tenants. There's for-profits, there's non-profits, there's government, there's private sector. Um, there's uh, a conference center. We've had a million and a half people visit the building in three years. And uh, last year, there were about 400 events in the conference center, 20,000 people on all kinds of themes. And we just charge, we're getting rent, right? Um, but it's been a great convening place. And the ecosystem principles were diversity, which every big building in a downtown has, but no connectedness. You know, find the edges, the ecotones, so it's open and no or as few as possible imper impermeable surfaces so people can can interact farmer's market in the summertime, and we have a good time there. So on the last one, uh, if we think uh, this kind of biomimic forest idea is so great, why don't we just do it? So we created a private equity fund called Ecotrust Forest LLC and closed on the first $10 million at the end of December, and I've got seven investors, including Ecotrust, that are individuals, uh, individual trusts, uh, family trusts, family foundations, and uh, family uh, investment companies. Um, who are putting up some money. We're buying second-growth uh, forest. That's one that we were hoping to buy out on the Olympic Peninsula, but we we're too late. And uh, that's what it looks like now because somebody else got it. 
We did get this piece, it's a, just a small piece of 1,000 acres, and that's what it looks like after the logging that we completed in, in, uh, in October. A little patch cut, some thinning, a little patch cut, a little thinning, a little thinning over here. Um, we're already about 5% cash on cash um, in about eight months' time, and we took a very small percentage of the merchantable timber. This was classic kind of leftover, logged over, beat up uh, 1,000 acres of land, right? But um, we're leaving the best trees. We're leaving the, the more natural mix of species, and it'll take time. Um, but uh, but I think it'll work. Um, we tried to get Warren Buffett excited about it, and uh, he sent me back a note, and it said, "Trees grow slow." <laughs> so there's a whole bunch of ways of. Uh, I, I didn't have a picture of the neocons in their meetings or George Bush and doing, I don't know what, I just thought this was a good picture. Uh, I don't know what we're doing right now as a nation here and around the world, um, but it feels sort of like that to me. I think there's another way to go, and it's got to be built on a whole different way of the way societies think. You know, there's what they call orange societies and apple societies, and orange societies are all segmented. They separate economics and ecology. I like this industrial model for forestry. And there's another model that's an apple society where it's all integrated and whole and connected. And we think that's the way to go. That's what James Jacobs is talking about. We think we can build a conservation economy by addressing, you know, economic vitality and social equity and uh, environmental restoration. We could measure it in fairly simple ways. This is the Klamath River two falls ago when the temperature water drawdowns were high. Temperatures went up and 60,000 fall Chinook salmon, beautiful, big, bright silver salmon, uh, died um, all at once. Um, so we know things are not well when that's happening. Ultimately, we got to figure out how to measure the way people thinking about this and the extent to which they're changing the way they think. Um, but we're hard at it, kind of a la Joseph Campbell, uh, trying to invent a new mythology of place, a mythology that will guide us in our relationship with each, with each other and with nature. And that's my whole story, and I'm sticking to it. Can we get the lights up a little bit? Uh, do we have questions coming up front here? Now's a good time. Simone, could you bring the lights up a little back in the back there? So we can all see each other. Thank you. When you were starting on that uh, volume center, uh, I had the pleasure of looking at that old building with you a couple times, and we were thinking about, uh, among other things, most buildings last about 60 years, and then they're gone. But actually, any building can live indefinitely, and some do, you know, castles and stuff, or buildings that get declared historical. What's your long-term time frame on the volume building, on the building we just saw? Um, you know, it was all about the life of the place. Uh, the interesting thing was not the, the green, you know, materials, uh, the way we're managing water and light and air. Um, the interesting thing was really that ecosystem model and the way people interact. So I think it's more about the community of tenants that's there 
and the way they might continue to interact over time. Um, it's been great, but um, I think if you end up with the wrong popu- you know, population that doesn't share the basic values, uh, we tried to get tenants clustered around a diverse, both retail and, co- and, and office, private, public, for-profit, non-profit, but they're clustered around forestry, fishing, food and farms, uh, green building, and um, social responsible investing. So the bank will make you a loan or take an eco-deposit. Uh, there's some foundations that will make up grants, and there's a social responsible investment fund, uh, one of the ones that I think makes the list in pulse analysis, um, progressive investment management, so you've got clusters. But So I think if it's alive, um, then it could last a long time. Um, but if socially it starts to die, uh, the rents aren't going to be there, somebody else is going to come along and say this is uh, baloney, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna bulldoze it and go up. A sort of interesting thing that came up, and I haven't told many people about this, um, but there's, uh, the building is on half a block, um, and that parking lot and the bioswales are also on a half a block. So we actually have a 200 by 80 by 13 story block in a very valuable area. And, um, so, I think, could we do sometime when we get time, uh, a really contemporary, really elegant, really beautiful, new building? And if the old historic and the new could play off each other, there'd be new life. Anyway, we'll see. You're a close student of Jane Jacobs, and, uh, and she of you by now, I notice. And, she rethought cities, not just American cities, but cities in general. And the relationship between buildings and cities, which is exceptionally interesting in Portland, and then between the city and the region around it, and then a city and basically its whole bioregion. How does that play out for you guys? Right. Um, well, we were working mostly in the rural areas down on the coast. We were trying to improve in environment and improve the economy, and we got talking with Jane Jacobs and said, you can't really, uh, the, you know, the people in Willapa Bay down the coast, they can't do it all by themselves. They, you need to connect explicitly uh, and directly with the technology, the capital, the markets, and the city. That's where development is really happening. So, uh, actually, she, she uh, said, I'd write about this. You guys are doing it. And we were working, for example, with Oystermen in Willapa Bay, saying, you guys are shipping this off in these, what are they called, number eight, the mason jars, these big, ugly, disgusting-looking things. It looks like a high school experiment, you know, in formaldehyde. Um, and, you know, people, young people don't eat those things. If you get into the high-end restaurants and do small ones and do fresh and do it, you know, on the shell and so forth, you're going to get... You know, you grow it shorter period of time, you're going to triple the price. Um, anyway, so we were working with restaurants and retailers and so forth and trying to make those explicit connections. So it sounded, it sounded really right, and I think it is true. Um, the ability to produce environmentally sound goods and services in the country, wood, food, fish, mm-hmm. whatever it might be, uh, services of uh, tourism, um, um, and connect with the uh, demand in the cities, so it's, it's almost a framework condition for Salmon Nation. We've got to find a synergistic, mutually reinforcing relationship between rural and urban. And today it's pretty, it's pretty sad. Um, it's pretty rough, you know. Blue state, red state, Republican, mm-hmm. Democrat, very divisive. Um, but I think it's all there. And, and uh, 
we continue to nourish that in a food and farms program, the forestry program, the marketing of green wood into the city and green building and so forth. And uh, um, uh, we just have to do a lot, 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 lot more. But okay, you, you talked a lot. Of, this is really a forest story you told tonight. Um, a wonderful one. There's a lot of stuff I hadn't figured out before. And one question from a person who might identify themselves is, what is hindering the logging companies from using the biomimicry model the most? Is it forest service or short-term gains, economics? What's, what's the problem? I think it's the economic model. I think it's Wall Street. Uh, I think it's quarterly earnings. I think it's net present value. Um, uh, I think it's uh, short-term. Uh, it's remote. Uh, it's investors who don't live there and uh, don't see the negative side of what they're doing. Um, the biggest shift in um, forest land ownership in the U.S. over the last 20 years has been about uh, 20% of the U.S. forest land uh, ownership going from big, old, industrial, integrated forest products companies to what are called TMOs, Timberland Investment Management Organizations, that own $15 billion, probably close to $20 billion now, and uh, some 12 million acres of forest land. And those TMOs, TMO, get it? It's not forest, it's timber. Um, our biomimic model was how about treating it like a forest instead of just trees. Um, this TMO is in, uh, all of them are fixed term funds. They are 10 or 12 year funds. Um, so buy wholesale, log hard, sell retail, divide it up. And then the, all the incentives are in basically a 20% carry on the organizers. So when you exit and get out towards the end, you make, you know, divide up 20% of the profits from the partners. So the 10 year horizon in a forest that's, well, you, we saw the history. Um, and inevitably, if you use a, an income statement approach instead of a balance sheet approach, uh, and you look at how much money, how much income can I generate fast, you cut it all down. And that's what's happening. If you use a balance sheet and build wealth, you will grow the income. And our all analysis is you'll get more wood, more money, more jobs, better water, more potential tourism. Um, but it's going to take some time. And Warren Buffett isn't quite there yet. So we're looking for our economics of patience. Yeah, I think just yet. We, we need, I mean, I, I just, I think we need uh, consumer demand. I mean, there's FSC certified wood out there. That's the standard for the ecological model, a Forest Stewardship Council, and there's about 100 million acres worldwide that's uh, certified now, FSC. The last of the dinosaurs are in the Pacific Northwest. They don't want to go that way. They've got their own SFI model, um, which is maybe an improvement. And there is, I mean, I shouldn't sound so negative and contrary, because um, there's a lot of improvement uh, across the landscape and different ownerships. But um, I, I think we need consumers and citizens and people saying, hey, um, how can we make this better? And if I'm building a house or need some wood, I'm going to make damn sure it comes from FSC certified forest. Um, and when I go to a restaurant and I ask for salmon, I'm going to make damn sure it's wild, not farmed. Okay. Uh, this is a question from Paul. I assume Hawken about the Heisler. Is that you? Okay. Uh, can you explain how you got the Heisler reengaged at the Kitlope? Um, be less modest, he says. Um, uh, we listened. I mean, it was, it was actually easy. 
Uh, it's funny, when I go around, you know, there's all this, there's this article going around on the internet called Environmentalism is Dead. Um, and there's a lot of evidence for that. Um, it's kind of 1E and it's been kind of big scary message and a lot of negative and pessimistic and abstract and full of data and contrary and leaves people feeling kind of whew, overwhelmed and um, uh, too busy to deal with it and uh, uh, looking for some more hope. Um, and I talk to some of the environmentalists now and they say, but we just have to get our message out better. We have to articulate the idea better. We have to, you know, learn from the marketing gurus and so forth. And frankly, my reaction is that is the same as what Tom Friedman told George Bush in the editorial, what, about three weeks ago before the Europe trip? And it said, read my ears. Uh, I said the most important thing that George Bush could do to build relationships with Europe is to listen. Um, and I don't think we need to tell people more what they have to do. I think we have to find people uh, where they are and what their needs are and what they're trying to do. Everybody's trying to improve their lives and their livelihood. Um, it's all the same across the board. Listen. I mean, I, that's our sort of basic principle. Start by... Spell it out a little bit. Not you, talking. So, yeah, we went, went out the, there, you listened. What happened to you? What happened to them when that happened? Um, well, the first trip, I mean, we we did the mapping. We found this place on a computer. We didn't know anything about it. We called around to the experts in British Columbia, the scientists and the uh, Ministry of Forest people and so forth. Nobody knew anything about the Kitlope. They never heard of it. I have no idea what you're talking about, Kitlope River. We said, well, it's the biggest unlogged watershed in B.C. Well, we don't know even know where it is or what it is. So we said, well, we're going to go up there and look at it. Who lives there? We called the Kitimat Village Council. The guy picks up the phone. It turns out to be the chief, a guy named Gerald Amos. We said, we've been doing some mapping, and we're really interested in the Kitlope, and can we come up and visit? There are three of us that foolishly uh, talked a float plane pilot out of Whistler into flying us up there. The other guys were bringing the food. I won't get into all the details. There's a long story there. <laughs> we were totally unprepared. Uh, and we got dropped off at the beach at the mouth of the river there. Um, there were grizzly bears and salmon run everywhere. It was totally cool. Um, but the, these Heisler three elders had said, we're going to go in there on such and such a time, and we'll just meet you there. And it was about, we got dropped off about uh, three days beforehand. Um, and I don't know why we thought they were actually going to show up. I mean, it was basically really stupid. Um, but they did. Um, and I just went fishing with them. They were up there fishing. I just went up and pulled the net and uh, pulled fish out of nets and watched them shoot the seal. You know, when he got in and started eating salmon, I was sort of admiring this seal swimming around the river. That's cool. <laughs> big, big pool of blood floating down the river. I said, well, he we fixed that problem. Um, <laughs> um, but we camped with him. We talked. We sat around the fire. Um, and, uh, they, you know, they told And I said, what, you know, what do you guys need? What do you think? What do you want? And the typical thing is you create a campaign. You go there and you recruit them to be part of your campaign. And they've seen every ism, you know, that we've had to offer for 400 years. And there hasn't been an ism at all that done them, has done them any good ever. Uh, industrialism, environmentalism, or whatever. It's always somebody else telling them what to do. They've lived there forever. They know what to do. Just support them. So I, we just, I, there was a very long, we, we did the map, the global map of temperate rainforest. Showed North America was most important. We did the B.C. inventory. For like, I think it was like $15,000. We looked at every, every watershed up the coast. We had the data said this one, you know, we looked at the satellite images. We talked to everybody. This was the most important one. Um, about the time the Ministry of Forests and the logging company figured out that we were on to something, 
they said, oh, yeah, but uh, we're just going to log part of it and we'll give all the jobs to Heisel and so forth. We produced uh, a, uh, a, a careful scientific assessment of the whole watershed itself and had that ahead of them in terms of the species list and stuff before the company was able to do that. They were going to log this through the first summer. Um, well, it's an interesting pace problems there because you've got to move fast to stay ahead of the logging company and, and the government in many cases, the provincial government. You've got to move slow because if you push the native groups, the uh, First Nations folks too fast, then that's just the same old story for them. So how do right. you dance that? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, that's just, that's the strategy. That's the all-night conversations. That's mm-hmm. the, do we go like hell right now? I mean, that, uh, I went to several meetings with the Premier and the Minister of Forests with Heisley elders where they said, you're going to have to shoot us. We're going to be on the beach with our guns. There's going to be blood in the sand. You are not logging the kitlope, okay? Um, we had to decide when those moments might be, I mean, together. I wasn't going to say, hey, come on, you guys, tell them that you'll, they'll shoot you if <laughs> come in here. <laughs> um, uh, but, I mean, I think the key thing was the Heisler Women's Society for Rediscovery. The woman in the village said, damn it, we are going to do something about these kids. And when we worked with them over four or five, it's been about eight years, and we got, you know, one week and two week sessions with about 15 kids in each one, uh, with the elders back in the Kitlope around the lake. They'd never been there. They hadn't seen it. It's 80 kilometers down that long fjord. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those kids started to hear the stories and see the forest and see the salmon spawning. They hadn't seen that in this little village. Uh, they were all of a sudden, the great moment for me in the whole history of it was uh, a Canadian film company did a documentary about the Kitlope. Um, and they interviewed one of the girls, uh, Robinson, uh, about 15 years old. Uh, in the rediscovery camp. And she looked right in the camera and said, I am proud to be Heisler. Mm-hmm. That was for me, you know, the most powerful piece of the whole thing. They became, you know, they found their identity, you know, how they're connected with history and where they're going to go in the future. They said, by God, we're going to get control of the situation. And I, you know, we did, a, we did, I'll bet you we did 20 publications. We did posters. We worked with several other organizations. We did inventories. We did the science we did conferences and meetings and got the local people together. And each time, fortunately, we were just sort of one step ahead. Um, uh, and event, the key moment was uh, at a public meeting. I wasn't there. Ken Margolis and our staff was there. It was a whole bunch of high school elders and youth. Um, must have been about June of 1994. And the woman for loggers group and the loggers and the labor union and the mill owners and West Fraser. And the West Fraser guy, after a conversation in the morning, got up and said, here's the deal. We're going to only log about 20% of the forest, you know, which means all the bottom land, all the big trees next to the river, and we'll only employ high slip people. And we thought, uh-oh, man. I mean, remember Margolis calling me and said, we might have lost the whole thing right here. But it just gone down the tube. They just made this offer. Nobody expected it. Bam. Everybody broke for lunch. They came back. And uh, Louise Barbetti got up, one of the women, high Slavic people, did language training. And she said, I don't think you understand. This is not about jobs. This is about our survival. This is about our people. This is about our identity. This is about who we are. This is not about employment. We know about working in mills. That's never done us any good. 
And then a young kid, about 14, got up and said, I've been in the kit lobe. You're not logging the kit lobe. We don't care how many jobs you're going to hand out. I'd rather be there catching fish on my own and living kind of a rich subsistence. And then, you know, about all the high school got up one after another and we were just like, yay. And I, <laughs> the uh, West Fraser, I mean, they were, it was good of them. I mean, they, they went, they said, okay, we give up. They walked. They had the rights to cut it. They'd spent a lot of money. They needed wood for their mills. It's a privately held company. And uh, Hank Ketchum said, you know, he actually later in an interview, uh, Ian Gill, and he wrote an article, now runs EcoTrust Canada, he said, why did you walk away from the kit lobe? And he said, well, it wasn't because of the environmentalists, and it wasn't because of the uh, Indians, because we, we deal with every place we go, there's environmentalists and Indians and big trees and salmon runs and the same old stuff. But when we looked at your maps and the global status and the BC inventory and the data, we don't want to cut the only remaining big, pristine rainforest left in the world. And I thought, way to go. So I did. <laughs> so there was a lot. We probably should, we should document it more carefully. But it was, I mean, the basic is, the, ra- the regular way is you can launch a campaign and you do this so-called grassroots organizing, you get everybody signed up, write the senators, and you make it happen. You force it down their throat. And basically what we did was 180 degrees. You know, it was just what I talked about. It was... Now, you were a Peace Corps volunteer at a tender age. Where, where, where were you a Peace Corps volunteer? I was in, uh, on the north coast of Honduras doing artisanal fisheries and dugout canoes with uh, um So did that bend your twig? Is that part of what made you... Yeah, I was uh, spent all my time with the birds and under that hood behind the view cameras. I didn't really want to have much to do with people. Um, mm-hmm. And I had a pretty clear choice of either, either going to... Uh, Photo Aerial Equipment Repair School in the Army in Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, in the height of Vietnam in 1968, or, sounded like cannon fodder uh, was a shorthand, um, or go to the Peace Corps uh, and uh, work in fisheries programs. And I think I'll take the latter. Um, and ended up in this wonderful little village of these terrific, uh, you know, um, black African by uh, heritage, but... Um, different people, and we paddled out through the surf in the middle of the night and went 10, 12 miles, 15 miles offshore and hand-lined and fished, and we helped build the fish traps and lobster traps and shark things and a little bit bigger boats and ice and so forth, and it didn't do any good. So I think I got it. Without the Vietnam War, there would be no eco-trust. Is that right? Huh? Without the Vietnam War, there would be no eco-trust. Yeah, I'd probably be out doing photography. I don't know. Yeah, but it did make me think about, uh, uh, you know what that, there's an interesting piece. We, I'm way, way over time. Everybody want to get out of here? Um, they, they, they said when you go down there to the village, there's nobody else. Now there are white guys around. There are no Peace Corps volunteers in these villages. So I was all by myself. I didn't, I learned a little French in college. I didn't speak Spanish. They'd done the three month thing so I could, you know, buen alias. Um, it was really pathetic. Um, uh, so go in and take a look at the socioeconomics of these villages where you're going to be working and figure out where the money comes from and where the food comes from and where the water comes from, if there is any water. And I did this kind of, there was a, a standard fruit company dock at La Ceiba, and they employed a lot of people, especially these Garifuna Moreno people. Uh, and as you went out in the villages, uh, four villages down about 20 miles, in a kind of direct arithmetic uh, gradient from those wage jobs at Standard Fruit Company, you had more and more of the traditional communities. And in San Antonio and Balfate, 
you go there, and there is no roads and no connection, and no none of the men worked in the Standard Fruit Company docks. And they had great little adobe houses with thatched roofs, and they decorated it with color and paint. Everybody had a dugout. Everybody had a small plot and a farm. The kids went to school. The men had one wife running all over town. Uh, there was a very little alcoholism. Um, it was really kind of a nice, intact, traditional. And right down to the proximity, the Standard Fruit Company, and the every two weeks, the cash check, the alcoholism, the uh, promiscuity, the sewage on the beach. I mean, it was just bam, bam, bam. That made quite an impression. Was, hmm. You know, there was an intact, long, slow-developed community. Uh, and then there was all of a sudden this cash economy, industrial thing that just completely... So that was interesting. You were working on a global stage, or at least in the, the sort of the New World stage for uh, all those years with Nature Conservancy and Conservation International. And so here's a uh, somewhat more global question from Phil Wolf. Where are you? Right here in the front. Um, this is the what about China question. Every lecture on every subject has a what about China question, and this is yours. Uh, you've got industrial economy soaring along year after year, 12.5% growth. Uh, you've got a population which is, uh, the birth rate is leveling, but it's still getting huge. There's 300 million Chinese coming to town from the, from the villages, from the rural areas. Uh, they're buying up all our plywood at very high prices. They're buying up everybody's steel and iron ore at very high prices. Uh, what about China? Um, lots of hard facts, reality check. Uh, what do they say? Uh, a pessimist, a definition of a pessimist is an optimist with more information. Um, uh, so we got a lot of big ideas. Uh, uh, but I think you got to try to make it real in a very particular place. And I don't pretend to have um, solution. Well, it's sort of interesting. You know, uh, Rio de Janeiro, uh, the Earth Summit, what, 1990? 91? 92. Uh, 92. And it was, I mean, big time. It was the biggest gathering of, you know, heads of state that I think had ever gathered. And it was all global. You know, they signed global biodiversity treaties and forest treaties and blah, blah, blah treaties. And then 10 years later, Joburg, uh, they all got back together. So disappointing. I mean, nothing happened. Um, they all treated, tried to deal everything on the global basis. They never got busy developing the local, regional, bioregional uh, leadership and institutions and incentives and organizations and initiatives and, you know, started making this stuff happen on the ground. So you got something to build from. So, I mean, I don't know. You have to go to China, and I suspect you'd have to go to different bioregions in China, and you'd have to think about who the people are there and where they come from and what the problems are with, with labor and traditional interests and rights and... Um, I mean, at least I guess I got busy here because I thought we needed to add a little more credibility to the American voice abroad. And uh, well, we don't have any at all that I know of, um, not right now. Um, so I, I, I don't have an answer for that. Uh, had a long non-answer, right? Um, um, we ought to at least set an example, and we ought to at least care about these things, and we ought to go over there and listen to them and see if there's a way to connect in a way that addresses their real long-term interest is not going to get served by this, of course. Now, whether or not um, there's ways to help them figure it out, I don't know. <laughs> They've been around a lot longer than we have. 
One of the uh, surprises in the talk tonight for me was that the forest you're so busy protecting is relatively recent, really only 5,000 years old in some respects, 15,000 in other respects. And that's the time frame of, of climate change, among other things. And um, with or without a whole lot of amelioration, we probably are looking at some significant climate change over the next decades and centuries. How is uh, the coastal temperate rainforest going to be with that, with rising waters, with changing climate? Right. Uh, it could be completely uh, self-buffering, and, and, uh, and the species may be more intact in this particular bioregion than many others. I don't know. What's your read on that? Uh, my read is if it, do we build in enough uh, diversity and complexity and uh, uh, resilience uh, through our management that the system will adapt and evolve, um, uh, and it may be that uh, redwoods will march northward. Um, we welcome a little redwood. Mm -hmm. um, it's a great species. Uh, the, the hemlock will march a little northward. The dug fir will start replacing some of the other things. Uh, uh, there'll still be forest, um, but uh, it might be a little mix of different mix of species. Um, well, it's interesting because the other thing I hadn't really noticed is that this 2,000-mile across the latitudes instead of across the longitudes. It's at right angles to everything Jared Diamond talks about. Right. And in that sense, if the climate is shifting a whole lot of things in the north-south dimension, mm -hmm. presumably this corridor on the west coast would be more capable, because of its continuity, of handling migration north of certain species and, and a, a gradual transition rather than a harsh cutoff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, remember the forest, uh, Clinton, um, he's, he came out to solve the forest problem in the Northwest shortly after he was elected. <clears throat> Big forest summit. Um, pretty interesting, really. Yeah, he was amazing. Got everybody together. They were always talking openly. And um, somebody was talking about the march of deforestation um, uh, going across the country. Um, and... Um, the industries or guys were complaining about spotted owls. And one guy stood up and said, <clears throat> the industry isn't come up against the spotted owl. The industry's come up against the Pacific Ocean. You know? <laughs> they just logged their way across, all across the country. There wasn't any more to, to do. It was gone. I mean, I think that that's right. I mean, this north-south and this mm -hmm. particular ecosystem type. Um, resilient ecosystems will adapt and change, and people, communities, and economies will adapt and change with it. Um, even over relatively short periods of time, but not if they don't have the the, the seed source, you know, the resilience, the connectedness, the um, the basic, um, um, you know, intact. We can't, um, you know, one of the things this administration is trying to do is legislate the difference between a wild salmon and a hatchery salmon. You know, why restore wolves when people have dogs? Um, um, we need those wild populations of salmon. Mm -hmm. They are going extinct in their southern, you know, latitudes. And without that information, that Bill Bryson, uh, short history of everything, you know, everything that's there is the result of survival of every progenitor all through time. If we don't have those wild stocks of salmon adapted to those very particular places, that recovery is going to be really tough and certainly won't adapt to, you know, larger scale climate change or other kinds of perturbations. 
What do I know? I'm not an expert, remember? I, I live here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. One of the great things about your story is that it's a long one in the past, and it's got a very long future. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.